It is to our God who is thrice holy that we come this morning. We come as a people who are not holy in ourselves, but we have found righteousness in Christ. We have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and thus can stand with confidence in the presence of the glaring eyes of pure, unmitigated holiness. A God whose eyes are too holy to even look upon iniquity can look upon us because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. We dare not come any other way than in the merit, the finished, accomplished work of Jesus Christ for sinners. Sinners such as I. And so, oh God, we delight to bring his name upon our lips. We would come no other way. We dare not. There is no merit in us. But in him is consummate merit. And so, in the name of Christ Jesus, we ask you, O oh God, to grant us fresh supplies of grace to, so that, such that we might live lives that are full of impact on a lost and dying culture, but are also pleasing to you. Our Father, there is much, so much for us to be grateful about. I thank you for all of the kind providences of the past week. I thank, that you, thank you that you kept our junior hires safe yesterday in the midst of a possible bad ex- incident. I thank you that you kept our high schoolers safe in the midst of one family having lost a child as a result of a shark attack. I thank you that the men in Guatemala are there safely. And so now we ask for your continued watch care over them as they seek to minister in, in large and in small ways. Father, we, um, we understand that there is nothing that unfolds in this universe without your kind intent or permission. And so we worship you today as the, the Lord God who reigns. Father, for us who continue to wrestle with smaller issues such as health or family or business, remind us that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And that in the midst of this turmoil, you will walk with us through it. Now, Father, thank you for generous giving people. And I pray that you will take every dime of this and use it for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5. Now, guys, I'm only going to read you one verse out of Isaiah chapter 5. But before I do, let me tell you a little bit about this. Uh, I, I think you know the Bible is divided up into several kinds of uh, types of literature. You know, you got the, you got the law, and then you got the historical books, and then you got wisdom literature, and then you've got the major and minor prophets. Of course, Isaiah is one of those major prophets. And when you think of the major prophets, you normally think of this, um, this, Firebrand, who is denouncing this and speaking of that, and, and Isaiah fits the bill. In this portion of Isaiah's book, although there is some wonderfully comforting and hopeful sections in the book of Isaiah as well, but 
in this portion of this book, he's doing something that is just downright Christ-like. If you'll notice, it begins in verse 8, and it begins with woes, a series of woes. I don't know if you ever heard the, the, uh, the phrase, oive, oive. Well, that's a, that's a Hebraism, which means woe is me. Well, it comes from this, uh, this same Hebrew word that you find in verse 8. You'll see it there, verse 8, verse 11. You'll see woe. You turn over to, um, or at least I turn over to verse 18. You see woe. In verse 20, you see woe. In verse 21, you see woe. The only other time that I know of in the Bible that you find something like this, this list of woes, is something that Jesus does later in the New Testament. A list of woes. Woe unto you for having done the Woe unto you. Woe unto you. Jesus does the same kind of thing. Well, in that sense, Isaiah is being downright Christ-like in his enunciation and proclamation of these, this series of woes. And so I want to read you just one of them. I want to read you verse 20. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. I'm not sure um, how many of you knew it. But um, we spent a lot of church money last week. Money um, that was given to us by you. Generous, giving people. We spent a lot of that money last week. And I, and I want to tell you how we spent it. Um, as some of you know, for the last eight or nine months, I, I have been on a tear about our kids, uh, specifically our, uh, high, our high school students. And my concern is, um, is that our, our kids are leaving our homes, heading off to some campus someplace, and it's there that they are confronted with all kinds of things and, and are being taught things that are downright destructive to their souls, things that are contrary to what to what we've taught them in our homes and and uh, what we've tried to inculcate within them. There is, ladies and gentlemen, without question, a battle for the minds and thus for the souls of all men, but specifically our youth. I think you perhaps have heard of college described as the place where mind, the mind makes itself up or uh, where the mind is made up on the college campus. So we, 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 they leave our homes, they head off to some place where they make up their minds and, and all you get is, um, evil being called good and good being called evil. Maybe that's a bit of an overstatement. I said all of you. That's not. But, but I, I think you know the, the, the gist of what I'm trying to say. 
So in the face of that, we decided to put together a, a, um, a retreat for high school students. A, a retreat which was designed to, to stem the tide. You know, it's, it's like trying to get a drink of water out of a fire hydrant. But, but we thought that we would do our best to, to, to say something in the light of all the torrent of unbelief that is sweeping over our kids on the various campuses on which they find themselves, both high school and college. Gang, if you don't know this, you must need know it. The Christian position is the overwhelming minority position in the world and in the land. Maybe, maybe not in some countries, but in this the Christian position is the overwhelming minority. So on this retreat that took place last week, instead of teaching a book of the Bible, which we've done in the past, which is a good thing to do, nothing bad about teaching a book of the Bible, what we did is that we sought to help them prepare, help our students prepare for the isms that we're trying to get them, to overtake them. Um, now, were we successful? I don't know. Um, only time will tell. I, I can say this. It was a first-class trip. And uh, you need to know this. A full half of um, of the cost of that trip was covered not by their fees. It's covered by you. We thought, and still do, that you would really be pleased with that kind of investment in the future of our kids. How do you think we could spend the money any better? We called it apologetics on the beach. And um, the first, our first meeting was on a Tuesday night, and, and um, you know, we had a, this screen behind me where I was speaking, and uh, it said apologetics on the beach. And one of our adult counselors raised his hand, and he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know what a beach is, but what on earth is apologetics? So um, maybe some of you are asking the same question. Apologetics is not learning how to apologize better. Apologetics comes from a, a, a Latin term, apologia, which has to do with the defense of the faith. How to defend the Christian position. So that's what it was. It was apologetics on the beach. Gang, our day is a day that is in a lot of ways like the day of Isaiah. Good is being called evil. And evil is being called good. We live in a day where darkness overcomes the light. And where sweetness is replaced by bitterness. And so... 
we did our dead level best to try and counter a bit of it. Let me tell you about it. Because we're convinced, gang, that the Christian church must... Did you get that? We must speak clearly, forcefully, intelligently, passionately about a culture that replaces the good with the evil and the evil with the good or calling good evil and evil good. And so four of our staff sought to do just that. Let me tell you what they did. Jonathan Todd, um, you might know that name. Jonathan Todd is on staff here. He is um, the head of our singles ministry and singles and college ministry. Jonathan, Jonathan, before he joined the staff at Gracie Van, was on staff um, at a Christian drug rehab uh, ministry here in Memphis. It was called um, uh, Second Chance. Second Chance is now out of business, unfortunately. But Jonathan spent five years, his previous five years, on the staff of Second Chance. And so when he came to us, he uh, was very knowledgeable about those issues. And so Jonathan spoke on what he called misapplied pleasures. Um, he confronted things like uh, drug and alcohol abuse. He, um, he um, discussed eating disorders and pornography. You know those things which are completely irrelevant to high school youth? Yeah. You don't believe that, do you? That's what Jonathan did. Jimmy Umloff spent three days presenting a case for the uniqueness of this book. That is, why is it that we Christians believe that it is so vastly superior to all those other religious books that are out there, like the Koran or the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, Gang, if you cannot open this book with a confidence that you hold in your hand the very mind of God as black words on a white page, if you can't do that, all is lost. And you can bet that the critics know this. And so they spend a whole lot of time trying to attack the veracity, the validity, and the reliability of this book. Jimmy Umloff spent three hours telling those kids why this book is in a class by itself. Randy Ray went after perhaps the most interesting of all the topics, sex. Mom and dad... I'm not sure you realize what's going on on the junior high and senior high campuses of our city. I didn't. And I want to assure you, the discussions were graphic. 
I'm just telling you. There were things said in that room that I had no idea were going to be said. Glad they were said. But you can't believe the things we addressed. We had a question and answer period at night where they submitted questions, and they submitted good questions. But, of course, the majority of them were about sex. But let me assure you, Mom and Dad, purity was taught as the only option. We even brought in an adjunct professor, a physician, an oncologist, Kurt Tower, who is the leading physician in the West Clinic here in our city and a member of Gracie Van. And he did a masterful job of showing the horrifying consequences of going beyond the boundaries set by God for our sexuality. Oh, my. Was it graphic? That was all done in the morning. We met at 8 for breakfast, and from 9 to noon we had seminars. And I want you to know that your high school kids were superb. We had zero absenteeism. Zero. Which brings us to the, um, the nighttime. And I must tell you that the speaker was less than spectacular. That would be me. I, I spoke to them about three isms. Naturalism, relativism, and pluralism. Which I know that you all know what that is, don't you? But just for the couple in here who don't, let me go over just a speck of it. First of all, philosophical naturalism. That is a view that suggests that nature is all there is. Nature is all that exists. Which, by definition, rules out the existence of any God. You know, that's probably a problem for us, you know? The naturalist position, ladies and gentlemen, says to you that we live in a closed environment and there is no such thing as any kind of outside influence on our, on our experience. That means God is out of work. That was done on purpose. Naturalism, my dear friends, is the reigning philosophical position of every university campus. It is the starting point of all academia. And naturalism is, by definition, anti-God. Of course, evolution is its scientific base, allowing the naturalist, to explain everything that he's wanting to explain without any reference to any kind of involvement by a personal God who we believe is described in this book. 
God is just not needed. And it's a darn good thing, because according to the naturalist, God doesn't exist. I sought to show our students where that philosophical position will take you. Number one, it means that um, man is of no value. He is a cosmic accident, and he's living a purposeless life. Number two, that morality, any kind of morality, has no philosophical base on which to found it. Uh, it is natural selection that has made me the way that I am. Natural ex- uh, selection explains why I am good. It explains why I am bad. And thus, naturalists sanction things like bestiality. Do I need to tell you what that is? There is a, there is a play that was um, um, performed in New York... And it, the title of the play was, Who is Sylvia? Now, this is just a play, but uh, the play entitled, Who is Sylvia? Uh, recently, I mean, in the last uh, 24 months. And uh, it's about a man who leaves his wife for somebody named Sylvia. And Sylvia turns out to be a goat. There is no rational philosophical basis for any kind of morality in naturalism, ladies and gentlemen. You might as well have sex with animals. Um, naturalism de-evilizes rape, incest. It is a worldview that has led to genocide, not, simp- not only Hitler's, even 9-11, ladies and gentlemen, is not condemnable. And all of those heroic efforts on the parts of those firemen, those were not laudable. Because you see, it is natural selection that made me bad, and it is natural selection that made me good. Therefore, it's nothing more than the product of some kind of evolutionary uh, development. So there's no real evil to the attack on the Twin Towers in New York. My friends, that is the natural, logical, consequential uh, uh, result of the position known as philosophical naturalism. And it's a whole lot worse than I have time to tell you. Then we talked about relativism the second night. You know what uh, relativism is? Relativism is the, um, the reigning view of truth on the college campus. Um, this is a book, uh, I, I, this book sold a whole lot of copies, um, uh, I guess in the late 80s. And uh, th- this is how the book opens. This is the first page of chapter 1. This is Alan Bloom's uh, Closing of the American Mind. Uh, he says, there is one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of, colon, almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. So every university student who arrives on the university or college campus is arriving there with a view of truth known as relativism that says there is no such thing as an absolute. All truth is relative. Absolutes don't exist. And uh, whatever might be true for you, uh, might not be true for me. Interestingly, um, 
relativists have to use an absolute to explain their position. They have to use an absolute to say there is no absolutes. They say there's no such thing as absolutes, which is an absolute. Which means that their whole position is philosophically self-refuting. I am going to tell you there is no absolutes except this one. There's no absolutes. I, I went on to try and show how relativism is a nice theory. But nobody, nobody is a practicing relativist. Um, for instance, I, I loved um, I love this illustration. I used it. Uh, I, uh, let's imagine that I'm a college professor and I'm tenured and you take my class on Western civilization and uh, you're my class. And at the end of the semester, I decide that all of you women fail because you're inferior people. And you say, well, wait just a minute. That's not fair. Who said? By what standard do you establish anything called fairness? Because all truth is relative. And I'm the professor and I'm tenured in my class and I say you fail because I think you're inferior. You go to a third world country and you see women being abused by men and you say, that's wrong. Who do you think you are to say that's wrong? You sophisticated, wealthy Westerner. Don't you bring your, your sense of right and wrong into our culture because, as you know, all truth is relative. We talked about the Nuremberg trials. You know, after World War II, they brought all those guys in there, Goring and Hess and all those fellows, and, and they brought them to trial. And Frederick Nietzsche, who was a classic relativist, Frederick Nietzsche, a name that might be, Frederick Nietzsche pled for them to be dismissed, discharged. They were not guilty. And the argument for the defense attorney for those, those uh, German generals was they were simply doing what German law required. And the, the prosecutor said, yes, but is there not a law above German law? And they went to their death, my friends, based on that law above all national law. That's called absolutes. But you can be sure that every college student that arrives on the campuses of America today have a view of truth that is relevant. My friends, we have in our Declaration of Independence the opening statement, which is that most of you um, memorized. We hold these truths to be self-evident that man has been endowed by his creator with certain inalienable rights. I dare you. What do you mean inalienable rights? What do you mean something about so My friends... Forget that piece of silliness. You have no inalienable rights because there are no rights. Because all truth is relative. The third night, we looked at pluralism. Pluralism, which is, suggests that all religions are equal. You know, all religions lead up the mountain to God, and you've heard that thing before. What audacity on the part of you Christians to claim that Christianity is the is the only true religion and that Jesus Christ is the only one that can take people to heaven. 
I tried to point out to our students that 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 statement, that claim, was not invented by Paul. It was not invented by the church. It was something that came straight from the lips of Jesus. If you've got your Bibles available, would you open to John 14 real quick? I'd like for you to see it. I took uh, some pains to point out that the, what I'm about to read you is in red. And everybody knows what being in red means. That means that Jesus said this. So if you'll just feast your eyes on John chapter 14, verse 6, I'd like to, um, I'd like to show you something that you've probably already seen before. But um, uh, I want you to notice it starts out with Jesus said to him, comma, quotation mark. This is a quote from Jesus who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't say, I am a way, a truth, a life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then the next sentence is worse. No one comes to the Father except through me. And after we all looked at those words, this is what I said to them. I said, my young friend, you have two and only two options. That statement is either true, and thus you realize that Jesus is the only way that you can get to the Father, and you embrace him as your Savior, and you become a Christian. That's one of your options. Or, if you choose to not become a Christian, you need to realize that what you are doing is that you are saying to Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you are a liar. That's one of your options. Take it. It's intellectually sound at least. And then I went on that night to try and attempt to demonstrate the utter uniqueness of Christianity, that it stands alone, that there is only one way to heaven, and it's through this Jesus Christ. The last night, Friday night, I used John 9. You might want to take a look at that, just you're real close, but John 9 is the story about the man born blind that Jesus gives him his sight And um, there's a famous statement in John chapter 9. This man is blind and almost immediately, I mean, after he receives his sight from Jesus, he is grilled. He's brought on, he's put, he's placed on trial basically by the Pharisees. Oh, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 9. And he's being asked all these questions, you know, bombarded with questions from the Pharisees. What about this? What about that? What about the other? What about that? You know, what do you, who are you? You know, all this on and on it goes. And finally, he says, wait, 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 just a second. And this is the famous statement in verse 25 where he says, uh, you know, I don't know about your question there, buddy, but uh, this much I do know. Once I was blind, but now I see. And I tried to um, point out to our high school students that the greatest argument for Christianity is the changed life. I closed that night with a story that I want to tell you. Because I don't know whether anybody else appreciated this story, but I did. 
I did something that was kind of a kind of a piece of um, what's the word um, serendipity <laughs> on Thursday morning. I had to take my wife to the airport in Pensacola. She flew to Washington, D.C. to be with our children in D.C., and I'm joining her tonight. Um, but um, I took her to Pensacola, and so I drove back by myself, feeling real sorry for myself. But uh, I spent Thursday and Friday and drove home yesterday by myself. But um, I decided, you know, I, I, I love, I would love a chance to get to know these kids better. I would love the chance. And so, you know, now I don't have any responsibilities. Um, and, and so I, I had this idea and, and I went to the pulpit on Thursday night and told them my idea. And it was kind of a kind of a risky thing for me because, real, in, in all honesty, I thought they'd look at me and say, oh, you nincompoop, get out of here. What I did was I said, listen, if any of you would like to join me for dessert after we're finished here, kind of a stump the chump thing, you know, um, uh, you come with me, and I can take five of you, and, I, you know, I know that I'm competing with the beach, and if I had to choose between the old, fat, and balding preacher guy and the beach, I'd take the beach every time. I can't believe any of you will come, but, you know, I'm, I'm secure in my own uh, uh, position here, uh, and, you know, if you, if you don't, don't feel sorry for me. You don't have to come. You don't have to do this, and, but I just thought, well, gosh, yeah, you know, I'm available. If you'd like to be, let's go have dessert, and let's, let's wrestle with some of your questions. They did it. They, they, I didn't have enough time slots to fill them all in. It was, it was delightful. We did it three times. Um, just a group of five to seven kids, just me and them, and, you know, answer their questions. But the first night that we did it, I took five of your kids to Applebee's. Um, right there on 98 in Destin and um, bought them dessert. And sat with them for a few minutes, and they asked questions, and I'm telling you, my friends, they were thrilling. They were good, sound, logical, articulate questions. They weren't silliness, you know. Well, he's good. You make a rock so big that he can't move it. <laughs> you know, it was none of that stuff. It was good questions. And so we engaged. We were around the table. The rules were everybody had to have a question. And they did, believe me. And the questions were wonderful. And so here we are, the fat, balding, old preacher guy sitting at a, one of those tall tables in a bar in Applebee's. Yes, that's right. I took your children into the bar at Applebee's. We're sitting, because that was the only table that was available. We're sitting there at this table, and um, we're, we're at this round table, and they're shooting these questions at me, and I'm just having a ball with them. And so... It was towards the end. We'd spent about an hour together. And, and as we were kind of wrapping, there was a Bible on the, on the table, you know. And, and as we were kind of wrapping things up, this employee from Applebee's comes over to our table. Turns out that he's a 26-year-old man. He looked like he was 46, but um, um, I think he's 26. But anyway, he comes up to our table. Now, this is a man who is a busboy at Applebee's. A 26-year-old man who's a busboy at Applebee's. That might tell you something. He has few, if any, teeth on the bottom of his gums. He is weathered. He has mileage galore on him. And he comes over to our table. And he says, um, very unsophisticated, inarticulate, uneducated, comes over to our table and he says, hey, uh, you know, <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't help but overhear some of the things y'all were talking about and some of the questions you were asking. <laughs> 
And then he proceeded for the next four or five minutes just to give us his testimony. Turns out that this young man had been deep into a drug habit using meth. And he found a, a rehab center in some small city in Florida. And it was there at that rehab center that he met Jesus Christ. And then with this sheepish little grin on his face, he speaks to our table full of these rich and beautiful and clean and bright and, and, and nice smelling Memphis kids. And he looks at them and tells them about how hard his life had been while he was on drugs. And, and, and then giving us a, a, a piece of assurance that things were so much different now. That he had met Jesus. He was standing next to one of the little girls. And this little cute little thing, a bright little girl, uh, is, is looking up at him. And when he finishes, he turn, she turns to him and says, actually she was already looking. She said, I can't believe you are sharing all of that with us. You know, gang, I couldn't believe it either. Because it was as if that busboy came right out of the pages of John 9. And he stood at our table. And he said, I hear all those hard questions that you're asking. But could I add one thing to your discussion? Because I used to be blind. But now I see. Tell me, my unconverted, unbelieving listener, how do you explain that man? What happened to him? It's as if that dear fellow is standing before you right this minute and he pleads with you saying, explain me. Explain what has happened to me. You know, you, you act as if you've got all these difficult questions and, and you're just waiting for somebody to, um, to answer all your questions and then you'll become a Christian. And he looks at you in his busboy uniform and he says, you know that's phony. The issue is not you've got questions that aren't answered. Now come back to the real question. Explain me. You've been asking all these deeply intelligent questions. Now it's your turn. I want to ask you a question. How do you explain me? That was the question that the man at Applebee's head, for us, it was the question that John, the man in John 9, so well represented. And it's the question that I leave with you. You know, the reason that you're here and you're not a Christian is not because you have all these deep questions the issue is and you know it you love your sin and 
if you come to Jesus, you know that sin's got to go. And you know what? You're right about that. Well, that's how we spent your money last week. And if God wills, we want to spend some more. We want to invest in people. In the hope that they will come to the place where they embrace Jesus Christ as their Savior. We want to invest in people in such a way that their eyes would be open to see that their culture is calling evil good and good evil. We want to invest in people in such a way that they'll finally be able to see what good is good and what evil is evil. We want to repeat that retreat and we want to add to it more events and more ministries and more opportunities, all of which are designed to tell people of the beauty of Jesus Christ. We want to spend money until we can all say with conviction, I used to be blind. Our Father, I do pray that you will use this church to announce and proclaim just how beautiful is Jesus Christ. Not simply because he's beautiful to us, but because he is intrinsically, definitionally, personally beautiful. And I pray, O oh God, that you'll give us the privilege of seeing our young men and women come to know Christ, but not just them, all of us. The adults, the older adults, any adult. Might none of them face the grave without this beautiful Savior of ours. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name.